Today I wanted to look at the final decades of the Irish workhouse, uh, looking particularly closely at Burr. Most historical accounts concentrate on the years of the Great Famine, when the workhouses were grossly overcrowded, dominated by death, epidemic disease and great suffering. Now, in this paper, I'm not denying that part of the history, but I also want to look at other aspects of the workhouse story, uh, how the workhouses operated in more normal times, if we can think about that, uh, and how their role changed over the 80 or so years after their foundation. The final years are quite important because they help us to understand the system of caring for the poor that the new Irish state inherited in the 1920s. I'm going to begin with a very brief history of the workhouse, highlighting some of the landmark events from the 1840s until about 1914, but the main concentration of the talk is after 1900. As you already know, the workhouse was an English institution introduced to Ireland in the early 1840s on the basis of a report by George Nicholl, an English poor law commissioner. The workhouses were founded to care for those in greatest need. They were also designed to discourage the able-bodied poor, the men and women, and particularly men, who the authorities believed should be out working. Uh, they believed in pre-famine Ireland that the standards of housing, clothing and food were so low that the poor law might actually prove very attractive. So it was also believed that the Irish poor would not want to give up their freedom by entering an institution where they would be regimented, up early in the morning, forced to do heavy work, separated from family members and other deprivations. So in Ireland, unlike England, the poor were very rarely given outdoor relief. They had to enter the workhouse if they were in need, whereas in England only a minority of those who of the poor were actually forced into the workhouse. It's a big distinction between the two. Irish workhouses provided space for 100,000 inmates, uh, more indeed after the famine. But Nichols explicitly stated they were not designed to cater for a major famine. Uh, in the years before the famine, relatively few people entered the workhouse. No workhouse was remotely close to being full, for example, in the autumn of 1846. But as we all know too well, the Great Famine changed that story, and the famine years gave the Irish workhouse a notoriety that has never disappeared. But the famine also brought another important change because it linked the workhouse with an emerging health system. The workhouses were never designed initially to care for the sick, except for sick inmates. But this changed dramatically during the famine years when many of those who ended up in the workhouse did so because they were seriously ill and had nowhere else to go. In 1851, the Medical Charities Act made the, work, made the poor law responsible for providing a basic health service throughout Ireland, dispensaries, a fever hospital and beds in workhouse hospitals. At this time, the hospital and the work, hospitals were only found in larger cities and some of the bigger towns. So the workhouses were the first hospitals in many parts of rural and provincial Ireland. In 1862, these workhouse hospitals were opened up to non-destitute patients. This meant that a small farmer or a tradesman who was seriously injured in an accident or who was suffering from pneumonia or a serious skin complaint could become a patient in the workhouse hospital without having to prove that he was a pauper. Now, there was always a certain stigma about the workhouse hospital. Anybody who had a decent home, anyone who could afford to pay a private doctor and get home nursing, stayed away. But for many of the small farmers and labourers, the workhouse hospital became the local hospital and was regarded as such. 
The conditions in these workhouse hospitals improved during the 1860s and in later decades when religious sisters began to take up positions as nurses. Before that time, the nursing was carried out by younger, able-bodied inmates who would have had absolutely no training and no understanding of hygiene and infection. The second change is the gradual extension of outdoor relief. The first group to be provided for were children. From the 1860s onwards, some poor laws boarded out children with foster families. For some reason, Burr Union was unwilling to pay for children to be boarded out. So as we will see, there were quite significant numbers of children in the workhouse in Burr in both 1901 and 1911. By the 1870s, some adults were also getting outdoor relief. Attitudes to this changed when a greater number of tenant farmers and tradesmen were elected to the boards of guardians. Widows with two children or more, who were often really destitute, were generally relieved in their own home. Though rather bizarrely, a widow who had only one child would only be relieved in the workhouse. Some able-bodied poor men with families also received outdoor relief during these years. The near famine conditions of the late 1870s and early 1880s, the conditions that gave rise to the Land League, brought about a sharp increase in demand for poor relief. In Burr, the number of inmates rose very sharply. There were, seven, there were just over 700 in 1878 uh, before the crisis broke. In 1882, there were about 5,000 in the workhouse, a um, sevenfold increase. In 1878, Burr Union gave outdoor relief to just about 100 people. In 1882, they had about 1,000 on outdoor relief, 10 times that number. It would be interesting on another occasion to look at Burr Workhouse and how it coped with the years of the land war. But today I want to concentrate on the early years of the 20th century. Now, before doing this, I want to flag two further landmarks in the history of the workhouse. The first of these is the 1898 Local Government Act, which created county councils and rural and district councils. The 1898 Act brings democratic local government to Ireland for the first time. The county became the local government unit, and the 1898 Act indicated that the days of the poor law union, which crossed county boundaries, Burr, for example, includes part of Tipperary, were numbered. The second landmark event that really impacts on the workhouse is the old age pension, and that's introduced in 1909. But now let's look more closely at who was in the workhouse in the early 20th century, beginning with the national picture and then looking more closely at Burr. There's actually a wealth of evidence about the workhouse in its final 20 or so years, much more evidence readily available than for any earlier period. You've got the 1901 and the 1911 census returns, though interestingly the forms protect the identity of the inmates. It only gives their initials rather than their names, which is a bit of a loss to the researcher. For example, I tried to see, is there anybody there in 1911 who was there in 1901? And I really can't work it out. There's also a viceregal inquiry in 1905, which took a sense of inmates also. I'm going to begin with the 1905 inquiry because it really looks at the whole system in a very interesting way. On the 11th of March 1905, a special census of Irish workhouses shows that there were just over 45,000 people in the workhouses and fever hospitals on that day. So they were less than half full. Almost two-thirds of inmates were either sick or aged and infirm roughly one-third sick and one-third aged and infirm. A further one in six, 13%, were children, 
Roughly half of those children were legitimate. The remainder were the children of single mothers. And some of those mothers were also to be found in the workhouses. Over 3,000 of the 45,000 were described as insane. These were commonly men or women who'd been discharged from the lunatic asylum because they weren't really that insane. Uh, but they had nowhere else to go, but they were, and they were also incapable of looking after themselves. In some cases, their families didn't want them back. Many of these people probably suffered from minor intellectual disabilities. They probably weren't insane at all. Only 4,000 of the inmates, four, sorry, 4,500 inmates, one in 10, were described as able-bodied. And more than a third of those were casuals, vagrants and tramps. Men and women who were on the move looking for work are those travelling men and women who were so much part of Irish life at the time. They're well described in something like the Farm Bell of Gur, for example. The men and women who often slept or were fed in local farmhouses that had cycled throughout the year. And occasionally they would end up getting bed and breakfast in the workhouse. What we have there for 1905 is quite a modern picture in many ways of those who seek the assistance of charities or the state today. You've got the sick, you've got the elderly, you've got those who cannot care for themselves, those with mental health problems, single mothers and their children, probably some deserted wives and their children, men and women who are homeless on the street and on the move. Some of these were described as alcoholics, Quite a few were ex-soldiers who moved around the world for many years and ended up with no family ties or no community ties. There were 15 military pensioners in Burr Workhouse on the 11th of March 1905. The workhouse master, who doesn't sound a particularly kindly man, estimated that the workhouse had admitted over 800 vagrants and tramps in the previous year. Some of them, I suspect, were, there, were admitted more than once. Uh, on the 11th of March... 1905, there were 19 homeless tramps and vagrants in the workhouse, nine men and ten women. Uh, I would have expected them to be all men, but there's a lot of travelling women out there. The master described them as all idlers and addicted to drink. He described further 17 inmates as ins and outs. Ins and outs were people who came in and out very regularly and didn't move from the locality. And he stated that they were all in the workhouse due to either intemperance or marriage of paupers. Um, so censoriousness rules here. Many of the inmates, however, were elderly and or infirm. Men and women who may have had nobody to care for them, perhaps because the family members had emigrated, or because these people never married. Bear in mind that by the 1880s, one quarter of Irish adults never married, and the care for those people in their old age would have been quite problematic. So workhouse inmates can be divided between those that stay one, two nights, who might return several times during the year, patients requiring hospital treatment who were not paupers, and long-stay inmates, most of these elderly and or infirm, but a significant number of children. In 1905, the numbers of men and women nationally were almost identical, but Burr was unusual because there were a lot more men than women, 147 men, 108 women. Why there were so many women, it's not clear, but the numbers are explained by more men in hospital and more elderly men who were not in hospital. But I want to move on now and look at Burr in 1901 and 1911, looking at the census returns. There were almost identical numbers in both years, 224 in 1901, 
10 fewer to 14 in 1911. That doesn't count the 11 lunatics in 1901 and the 9 in 1911. But, so the numbers are almost the same. But there's an interesting shift between the two censuses, which is worth exploring. In 1901, roughly a quarter of all inmates were either in hospital or classified as lunatics. By 1911, more than one-third of the inmates are in hospital. The number of sick inmates therefore rose quite significantly between 1901 and 1911. And what this suggests to me is that the workhouse is becoming more important in the community. This is interesting because in the 19th century, most people tried to avoid hospital and with good reason. There was a serious prospect of a hospital-acquired infection in the days before doctors and nurses understood the causes of infection and how to prevent it being transmitted. But the 1911 returns indicate that people are coming to trust hospitals and to make more use of them. And this is a trend that, of course, grows throughout the 20th century. Bear in mind that most hospital patients in the workhouse were not paupers. In 1911, there were some long-term patients, uh, men and women with paralysis, debility, or bizarrely, a young man with asthma who had been there claimed for 10 years, and a patient with an ulcer who had been there for two years. But there's also the farmer who fell from his cart, the painter who slipped from a box painting a van, the labourer who slipped on wet flags when working. They all fractured lower limbs. Now, unless these were simple fractures, it's highly probable that these men never walked properly again and that they may not have found it possible to find work when they were discharged because of this handicap and they might well have turned into long-term inmates in the workhouse as a consequence of that accident. The workhouse hospital also had several cases of thysis. It's what we call tuberculosis. Ireland's TB epidemic peaked in the early 20th century. The increasing number of cases in Burr Workhouse between 1901 and 1911 reflects this epidemic. It also reflects the fact that people are coming to understand that TB was infectious and that they don't want a TB victim in their home. There's also the reality that there's as yet no dedicated TB sanatoria for public patients anywhere in Ireland. Not all the people in the workhouse who were injured and handicapped were in hospital. There were quite a number of inmates, primarily men, who were lame, blind or deaf. These are disabilities that made it difficult, if not impossible, for them to find work, disabilities that condemned them to poverty and to long-term life in the workhouse. The second group that I want to look at are the elderly. In 1901, more than one-third of inmates were over 60 years of age, but not in hospital. Two-thirds of these were men, one-third women. By 1911, there are fewer elderly who are not in hospital. Only half the number of men aged 60 or older compared with 1901. And there are equal numbers of men and women. So what's going on there? Why are there fewer elderly men in the workhouse in 1911? I would suggest the explanation lies in the old age pension, which was introduced in 1909. The old age pension paid everybody who was 70 and over five shillings a week, which was a little under half of the weekly labouring wage. So it's not a trivial sum of money and it's not a trivial sum of cash in a rural community. Liam Kennedy has looked at the household census forms in Donegal in both 1901 and 1911, and he found that there were more elderly men living with relatives in 1911 than in 1901. 
He concluded that the introduction of the old age pension meant that relatives were much more willing to provide a home for an elderly relative, especially an elderly man who was not that close a relative, perhaps your uncle or cousin. Uh, because five shillings a week in cash was actually quite a lot of money. The figures also suggest that men in their 60s were staying out of the workhouse, even though they were getting elderly and a bit more infirm, because they knew that the old age pension would help to provide for them when they reached the magic age of 70. Why wasn't there any fall in the number of elderly women? I suspect that relatives were more willing to keep an elderly woman, provided she wasn't sick or disabled, even without the pension. Older women could mind children, and bear in mind families are large, they could do housework. Uh, And this freed the mother to help out on the farm. The census return classifies all inmates as either able or unable to work. In 1901, there were older men in the workhouse who were described as able to work, no older women with that description. So I would suggest that the older women who were in the workhouse in 1901 and again in 1911 were quite frail and probably needed a lot of care. By 1911, the older men who were in the workhouse needed care and were frail. For these men and women, the workhouse was fulfilling the role of a long-stay institution, a nursing home, and that was the major function of the country, county home after independence. The other big group in the workhouse, though it's much smaller than the other two groups, are children under the age of 15. They're roughly a, a quarter of all inmates in 1901 and again in 1911. A tiny number of these were in hospital uh, and they would have been going home. Most weren't. Uh, if you exclude the hospital cases, there's about, four, fifth, sorry, there's about 50 boys or girls whose ages range from infancy, one in 1911 was only a couple of days old, to up to the age of about 14, though very few are actually over the age of 12. Some of these may have been short-term inmates who arrived with their mother and or maybe their father. As I've said without surnames, I cannot link children to the adults. But the majority were the children of single mothers. Some of those mothers had remained in the workhouse, others had left. Burr Union didn't board out children, and it would be interesting if we could establish why. Other unions did. But by the age of 10, children would be taken out of the workhouse by farmers eh, to become servants or labourers, boys and girls, on the farm at no cost to the union. Eh, Most child inmates were younger. There were very few able-bodied adults in the workhouse in either 1901 or 1911, though more women than men. And most of the men were casuals on the move, likewise some of the women. But there were also women with children whose husbands had perhaps left in search of work or abandoned them, and a number of single women who had been domestic servants. Bear in mind, if a servant loses her job, she has nowhere to live. Maybe the men would sleep rough in those circumstances. Women were probably less likely to do so. By the early 20th century, the British authorities believed that the workhouse was an outmoded institution. They were particularly critical of the fact that it accommodated inmates whose ages ranged from birth to 90 years, that they included sick, insane, the well, single mothers, abandoned mothers and children. In other words, it was an all-purpose institution. They wanted a more rational, organised system. They proposed that children should be cared for in the community, that there should be specialist institutions catering for the sick and for the elderly. There were plans afoot to close the workhouses, to create a county hospital and a county home, as happened after independence, single mothers to be sent to specialist institutions, 
the children boarded out. Some workhouses turned into dedicated TB sanatoria. That's more or less what happens after 1920 when Dáil closes the workhouse and sets up one hospital per county and one county home per county. Huge fights over where they would be located. However, the county home in many ways becomes the workhouse mark two without the hospital element. Uh, they accommodate the infirm elderly, single mothers and their children, and those classified as insane, who, as I've said, were often men and women with mild intellectual disabilities. I'm going to leave you with a paradox. Irish history represents the workhouse as a universally reviled institution, and with good reason. Yet by the early 1900s, the workhouse had come to be seen, probably reluctantly, as an integral part of the local community. I don't want to exaggerate that point, but neither should we ignore it. Several witnesses who gave evidence to the 1905 inquiry claimed that elderly inmates were distraught at the prospect of being moved from the local workhouse to a more distant county home. Many elderly inmates, and bear in mind the majority of inmates are elderly, were visited quite regularly by friends and relatives because the workhouse was not very far, was by and large close to their original home. Most importantly, when these elderly people died, they would be brought back to their home parish for burial. Uh, there are descriptions of funeral cortages leaving the workhouses. They would not be buried in the workhouse cemetery in the poor plot, and this was very, very important to these elderly men and women. Witnesses described funerals leaving workhouses escorted by mourners. These men and women feared that if they were removed to a, another part of the county some distance away, this would no longer happen. We're in the pre-motor car age, where trips of perhaps 30 miles to transport a body would be quite expensive and beyond the capacity of most ordinary people. So while not forgetting the story of the workhouse during the famine years, let's try and remember the role that it played in the evolution of state services for the sick, the elderly and other categories of people in need. If you look at social services in Ireland today, despite the dramatic changes that have taken place, some of the legacies of the workhouse era can still be detected. Thank you very much.